Kia ora, you're listening to a Coalesce Produce podcast, PhD Unpacked. Now we're encouraging teachers to acknowledge, in the spirit of Ako, that the children, Māori children especially, will come to the classroom with Māori language and culture knowledge that the teacher may not have. A podcast where we unpack a PhD thesis over the course of 30 minutes. So we have initiatives at the ministry like Kahikitea, which is the Māori education strategy, the aim of which is to make sure that Māori students achieve success as Māori. At PhD Unpacked, we're focused on bridging the gap between research by academics and community experiences in New Zealand. Not everyone has the time to read through a 100,000 word thesis, so we decided to sit down with the authors themselves and breeze through the tidbits and juicy details without all the academic jargon. That may mean that at certain points during the episode, I'll summarize what both James and the author have said. Speaking of which, as well as hearing my voice, you'll hear the voice of the host, James. Kia ora. James and the team have read through the entire thesis to ensure that we ask the right questions and get to the core of why this is important to Aotearoa. I'm Yelena, and I'll be the narrator throughout the seven-part series and beyond. While James was in the room with the interviewees, I'll be sitting beside you, like that one friend watching their favourite movie, who chimes in every now and again, fills in the gaps, and makes sure you don't miss any of the good bits, or laughs at James' expense. Whenever you hear the podcast beats... You know I'm about to come in and say something profound, life-changing, and hopefully meaningful. Today we're joined by Dr. Alice Patrick to discuss her thesis, Non-Māori Teachers Teaching Māori Language in English Medium Primary Schools. We are all in this together. He waka e Alice has a wealth of experience spanning over 50 years across the primary, secondary, and tertiary sectors. As well as working in a number of government agencies centered around te reo education, she was at the heart of the conceptualization and development of three significant Māori resources for school projects. Kia mau, he reo tupu he reo ora, and te aho arataki marau. Alice has recently begun work creating bilingual reading resources for primary schools and whānau use, called Arahia Books. We begin this episode a bit differently, with Alice's pepeha. Alice, kia ora. thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. Welcome to PhD Unpacked. We're absolutely stoked to have you. How are you, first and foremost? Tēnā koe, James. Nā mihi nui ki ākoe. Ki nā tāngata e whakarongo nei, ki tēnei whakawhiti kōrero, e pāna ki tēnei tino kaupapa ki ahau nei. Arā, ko te reo Māori, kei roto i nā kura auraki. Kia ora, James. Thank you for inviting me to share or to demystify um, my PhD, he waka eke noa. This is a subject that we're all in the same waka, trying to promote te reo Māori, especially in schools. My focus, of course, was non-Māori teachers, with me being a non-Māori myself. Non-Māori teachers and the expectation on them to be teaching te reo Māori in the English medium system. I come from Scotland, so it may seem incongruous that this is something that is a passion for me. I came here at the age of 10, and my next-door neighbours in a very low decile area of Tauranga, decile 1 in Maryvale, my next-door neighbours um, were Māori families. Their surname was Laysons, and they're from Taranaki. And thanks to them... Uh, I was exposed to Māori ways of being 
and Māori ways of thinking. And I liked what I saw and I liked what I felt. So they used to take me everywhere with them as their eighth child. They had seven children of their own, but they had a big van. And I was exposed to their nanny, their kui, their gravestones, wandering around the graveyard, doing things that they saw fit in their world, like washing the tea towels separately. Things like that I learnt just by watching by osmosis. And then at the age of 17, I went off to University in Dunedin and met, um, quite naturally probably, a Māori man um, who was doing a phys ed degree down there and I was doing languages. And um, from one whānau, one family, to the next, I learnt a whole lot more from his whānau as well. He was from Ngāti Awa, from Whakatāne, and their family was the Takutihiwi whānau. So I pay big tribute to those two whānau for the journey that I have been on for the last probably, well, I'm 70 now, so it was probably at least 55 years. I'd like to acknowledge them. My work most recently, having been a primary school teacher, a secondary school teacher and a tertiary lecturer in Te Reo Māori, my most recent work has been working in schools with mainly non-Māori teachers, primary school teachers helping them upskill their Māori language ability, but also just giving them confidence that they can do this, they can play a role in the revitalization of te reo Māori. Ahako he iti, even though it's only a small contribution. So that's my role, to give them the confidence and the courage to take a risk and inculcate some te reo Māori across the curriculum that they're teaching in their classroom. I also have a personal motivation in that I have six Māori mokopuna and I would like to think that the mainstream education system, the English medium schools, can perhaps do a better job in the next generation for our mokopuna. So there's multiple motivations there from my background Scotland to the Māori whānau that I've been exposed to and my own family situation, my whānau situation. Kia ora. Kia ora. Well, thank you for that little introduction. It leads me nicely on to my, my first question, which is, why was it that you decided to do a PhD specifically looking at te reo Māori and, and teachers in New Zealand uh, at the stage when you decided this is something, research is something that I need to do outside of all the other roles that you mm. had held previously? Mm. Because I was working with those kinds of teachers, non-Māori teachers, and there was no research about how difficult it was for them to fulfil the expectations of the ministry. Some people believe that Māori language is actually compulsory in primary schools. It's not. We're encouraged to teach it. So there's a huge expectation on them. And they've got really good hearts, good will, good intentions to incorporate te reo Māori across the curriculum. They falter perhaps in the execution thereof in terms of their practice, but they want to do it, I can assure you. There are barriers in the way, there are factors that impede um, their goodwill and their good intentions. So really it was my work with them that precipitated my doing the PhD on this particular topic. You're very aware of your positionality to the mm. research, as we found in uh, other PhDs this season on completely different topics. Mm -hmm. We always find it fascinating when the researcher analyzes their own role to the work that they're studying. And clearly your PhD is about 
non-Māori teachers teaching mm. Māori and their experiences and their roles within this this ultimate goal, which I suppose mm. holistically is to get uh, te reo more frequently spoken, mm. whether it be inside schools, whether it be outside schools or primary education specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself in relationship to this research? I guess the role of being an outsider, perhaps an insider-outsider is a term we've learned throughout mm. this season, mm. and the complexities of that, but also the allyship of being someone that really wants to to uh, contribute to this this greater discussion and change mm. within how we think about te reo in this country. Mm. It's a really good question, James, and I agonised over the answer. I had to write about locating myself as a researcher. Whilst I was the insider in terms of empathising with the non-Māori teachers, because I've been through that struggle of having to learn the language over many, many decades, I was also an outsider in terms of not having proprietary rights to the language that I wanted to study, and I was very aware of that. So in the process of agonising, I talked with some Māori academics at Victoria University and said, is this the right place for me? Because ideally, we all believe, I think, as researchers, that Māori research should be done by Māori researchers. But in discussion with them, they said, let's look at it from the goal of what are the benefits of you doing this research? The benefit is it's good for Māori. It's good for Māori language. It's good for Māori parents and schools who have an expectation that their kids will be exposed to te reo Māori. So that's where our stance came after the agonisation um, of this will benefit Māori in the end and I'll be as sensitive as I can in the process of doing it. Always mindful that I'm just really an, an enabler, I'm just supporting Māori-led initiatives. Do you think you could give us a, a very, very brief comment on the landscape of te reo Māori in New Zealand, how it's changed over your lifetime, the last 10 years, sort of policy changes that you've seen, just a very loose construct of, of how the way we view te reo is, is shifting. I know there have been changes in regards to uh, how the Ministry of Education thinks about te reo. Um, any of your thoughts about how te reo has sit within New Zealand previously and how that has led to what we're trying to work on now? Hmm. I think we need to look further back than a decade uh, to the 1970s when Richard Benton from NZCER at the time did some research and um, it was highlighted that Māori language is a really, really endangered language in the world and OECD has since backed that up. Thereafter, there was a petition to Parliament, a very important petition to Parliament in September 1972, which demanded English status for te reo Māori and te reo Pākehā. And there started the revitalisation efforts after that. We started with Kohanga Reo. The first Kohanga was in Wainuemata in um, Wellington here. Second Kohanga was in Pipitea Marae, just down the road from the studio. They were community-led, Māori-led initiatives. They broadened it from the kohanga, that's the preschool Māori language nests, as it were, to kura kaupapa, primary schools, 
further to Kura in secondary, and then Whariwananga. So there was a continuum that you could learn through the medium of Te Reo Māori from preschool right through to tertiary. And other Māori language revitalisation efforts popped up along the way in response to the demand, and that was things like the media and making Māori available in schools as an option because hitherto it wasn't. And then Māori became an official language in 1987, along with um, New Zealand Sign. So the policy landscape has been such that we've had the ministry creating policies to acknowledge that Māori students would fare better if they had their own language and their culture validated in classrooms. And part of that would be to incorporate te reo Māori more, so they feel good about being Māori. And that might go some way to addressing the differential achievement that we've had so far. So we have initiatives at the ministry like Kahikitea, which is the Māori education strategy, the aim of which is to make sure that Māori students achieve success as Māori. And those last two words are the crucial words. We don't just want them to achieve success. We want them to have their Māoriness validated. So the as Māori are really crucial. They don't have to forego their Māoriness, their Māori identity, in order to achieve success. It can be an and-and. We also have other things like Tau Mai Te Reo, which is Māori language and education strategy where Te Reo Māori is prioritised. And we have cultural competencies that all teachers are accountable for. And the name of that policy document is Tātai Ako. So there's a, a suite, if you like, of initiatives that are really proactive in promoting te reo Māori. It's fascinating to read your PhD. And there's one person who, who you quote, uh, Krauss, who speaks about, I guess, this I- idea of endangered language. Mm. And I think endangered is a word that we mm. uh, so often apply to species, other things. Species, bird species. Species. Mm. And we're so abundantly aware of endangered species and yet using that language of endangered towards language mm. as, a, as a whole, I think really mm. presents how, how fragile language has mm. become and seeing why implementing different policies and perspectives is really, really important. That's actually such a great point from James around how endangered is usually followed by a species or an animal. The same way a species can die out or be revived, so too can a language. Like animals, language is a living, breathing being. The next point to discuss about the PhD was the methodology Alice undertook. So the first step was releasing an online questionnaire. Alice asked teachers about their knowledge, views and beliefs on Māori language teaching and learning in the classroom, and she asked about their views on the available Māori language resources. The next step was to do face-to-face interviews with some of those teachers with the following goal to give them an opportunity really to um, express their own voice and their own reflections on how it is for them trying to integrate te reo Māori in their classroom. The interview and questionnaire gave Alice a baseline to work from. She learned what the teacher's ideal situation was and their stated beliefs. She then followed up with classroom observations. And that gave me uh, an idea of what is actually happening in the classroom despite your ideal position and your stated beliefs, what's actually going on in your classroom. And there were some consistencies, 
but there were also some inconsistencies due to different barriers that were in the way. Diving a little deeper, part of what Alice found was the gap between what teachers hoped to achieve and what was actually being achieved in the classroom. But as I said, I'm just diving a little deeper, so I'll drop you off back into the interview room with James and Alice. And I guess as we we shift towards the, the results of your PhD, the, the findings of the different aspects of methodology that you went through, the first thing to look at is, is the attitude of the non-Māori teachers. And, and it seems within your research that mm. for the most part, mm. the, the attitude is, mm. is great, that, mm. that you know, teachers for the most part are, are really on, on board. Yeah. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Absolutely, I would. They're scared. I'd have to say that. They're scared. They lack confidence. They're also scared of Māori parents um, criticising them for less than exemplary pronunciation, shall I say, be it in a waiata, or be it some phrases they've taught, or be it on a wall chart that the mistakes are there. So they are scared, they lack confidence, but once they are given the tools and the resources to do something in the classroom, we go beyond Māori numbers, Māori colours, greetings, and farewells, which has been the diet that even my own children who are now in their 40s had when they were in English medium classrooms. So if you give the teachers some professional development, some quality professional development, and some quality user-friendly resources, they can move on from that basic diet, such that a five-year-old will have a different exposure to Māori language than a year eight, uh, 12-year-old. They're not exposed to the same thing year in, year out. There's a progression. That's what we're working towards. I guess that is the nature of being a primary school teacher, say, compared to a secondary school teacher mm -hmm. that I've only learned recently as uh, friends, neighbours have become teachers and you realise that there is teaching is different depending on who your cohort is. And when you're a primary school teacher, you know, you may be required to cover all of the subjects and if mm. te reo Māori is one of those subjects mm. that you're trying to teach to primary school students it may be the case that you as a teacher don't speak te reo and you might want to and this brings mm. us to this idea of you know should the teachers themselves speak te reo at a certain point there's this concept of uh, ako that you bring up within your PhD and this idea of scaffolding where you talk about teachers learning that it's okay to make it transparent that they are learning themselves mm. and that making mistakes mm. is okay. And I think that is a really maybe non-traditional philosophy within education. You know, traditionally we place the teacher as the person in the know and the students as the, the people that mm. need to learn. And maybe that isn't so helpful with mm. thinking about te reo Māori and actually teachers making it clear that they are on this journey as well is, is a much more helpful mm. mindset. Could you unpack yes, that for us? it's a lovely concept, Ako, because it's about reciprocal teaching and learning. I can learn from you, but you also can learn from me. And what you've expressed there is that empty vessel philosophy in the past where the teacher had all the content knowledge and we, the student, was the empty vessel to be filled up. Now we're encouraging teachers to acknowledge in the spirit of ako that the children, Māori children especially, will come to the classroom with Māori language and culture knowledge that the teacher may not have. They'll come with a wealth of knowledge perhaps from their parents and their 
their elders, their kaumatua, and that's valid knowledge and it needs to be validated in the classroom. So you can see realistically a teacher being helped, if you like, by Māori children in the classroom. And um, in the spirit of ako, there's nothing wrong with that. The teacher does not have to know everything. As you look at the, I guess, the landscape of, of classrooms and some of the classrooms that you visited, there were some elements of, of the, the teaching that you bring up in your PhD. And one is this idea of translanguaging that I found really fascinating, incorporating both English and te reo Māori together whether it be you might form an English sentence and just put one word of te reo in, but it's it's a, a start. That is something that I've seen a lot of recently, this attempt to, you know, perhaps you don't have to say a full sentence, mm. blending these languages mm. together, that and linguistic landscaping, this idea that, you know, if you incorporate uh, te reo or another language into visuals, whether it be posters in mm -hmm. a classroom or on the back of the bus, mm -hmm. These are a small stepping stones that help contribute. Were those some some key elements that you saw? I guess this blending of of the different languages together and understanding that you know English can work with Te Reo Māori or other languages to to work towards better proficiency. Yes, it's the key you said there was working towards. Um, for comprehensibility, it's fine if teachers embed some Māori in an English sentence. It's a start. Uh, even if, as you said, it's just one kupu, one word, or a phrase. It also um, benefits other children from different ethnic groups in the classroom because it can work for the Samoan children and, and anyone else in that classroom from different ethnic backgrounds. They too can take on the strategy of translanguaging. They know some English, but they, their preferred language is their own heritage language, so they can mix up. Um, the two in a comprehensible way. Mm. And linguistic landscaping, we're seeing it increasingly all the time. On the policeman's car, there's the word prihimana. On the fire engine, there's the word patuahi, to beat down the fire. Uh, it's everywhere, just increasing the visibility of te reo Māori so that we can't really avoid it. It's there, and it's fabulous. There are many other key takeaways that we would love to unpack, but you know, in the in the sense of, of condensing, we can't. But I guess a couple to mention are, you know, within within the research, you found that not having enough time dedicated to teaching te reo, say compared to other core mm. subjects, is an issue. Uh, not enough professional development mm -hmm. for teachers is an issue. But perhaps the the number one takeaway that that we have discovered is is this focus on resources which we know is something near and dear to to your heart and indeed your professional work ongoing can you explain a little bit why resources are so key within this particularly for non-maori teachers in primary schools and why the the lack of solid foundation resources is i guess slowing the progress especially where teachers uh, want to and they're really motivated to provide uh, a stronger te reo curriculum. What did you find about the, the lack of resources and, and what are you doing about it yourself now to try and improve upon that situation? I'm responding to one of the um, main priorities that teachers told us in this research and that was they want big bilingual books. They still need the English on the back half of the book, 
They need sentence structures that are repetitive, but they still need a wow ending for the children. So it's not just rote learning. There is still a storyline, albeit a simple storyline. They also need uh, teacher's notes so they can maximize these big bilingual books. Not just read them and put them back in the reading corner, but then extend the children with some second language activities based on good pedagogy from second language acquisition. They need audio support because their confidence in pronouncing te reo Māori perfectly is lacking. And they also need the English translation, as I said, in the second half of the book. So they can compare when they see a sentence like, um, I'm making one up here, um, kei te peke, te tamaiti, kei runga i te whareki. The child is jumping on the mat. They want to see the comparison. How does, where's the word jump? So they look at the English translation. And what's the word order that's different from English? So they need the English there. Very much so, very much so. In the future, they would like resources that are um, more multimedia beyond print. They still want the print though. Print is number one for them. It may seem old-fashioned to you, James, because you're young, but the teachers do want um, print, but also multimedia, especially games, Māori language games. And they also want resources about their local rohe, their region. So here in Wellington, we might have resources about the Tanifa, Ngaki and Whātaitai, and the, the history behind the past sites, uh, the local iwi, te Atiawa, would um, give lots of local knowledge. And that's what schools are asking for. They want to know their own home patch first before they study something like the Romans and, and Tudor England and things like that. So that's where they would like resources to go. And I would have to say the ministry is responding to that. They've got an initiative that um, resource developers can work with iwi and submit a proposal to the ministry to create a resource around the story belonging to that iwi from that local rohi. So things are happening in that space. The research um, has provided an evidence base for the ministry to know where to spend its money in terms of resource production. What are the priorities that our stakeholders, our teachers, are telling us they need and want? So that provides them with a good guide, a good steer to fill the gaps, if you like. And it also provides them with an evidence that teachers are calling out for quality professional development, quality PD in schools around te reo Māori. It goes back to what I said at the outset. They want to do this, they just need to be shown how to do it and given the confidence to keep on going and progress beyond colours, numbers and songs. And for the teachers, obviously you've pointed towards the fact that for the most part there is a motivation uh, to, mm. to better this space and hopefully with things like better resources coming through the, the teachers will have opportunity for change to come about but your recommendation for teachers that uh, are wanting to improve their ability to teach te reo at the non-Māori whether it be primary school or mm -hmm. secondary school or elsewhere recommendations for them I mean we're of the age on the PhD Unpacked team where we 
at this stage are now knowing people going into into schools that are becoming teachers. So it's mm. a fascinating f- time mm. for us to have people of our, our generation and age going in to teachers, whether they be new or, or I don't want to say old, they've been at it slightly longer. What are your recommendations for for them? Certainly I would encourage the leaders of these schools to ensure they facilitate some professional development for their teachers around te reo Māori, tikanga Māori, te ao Māori, the Māori world. It's behoven, I think, on them to create that atmosphere where all staff can have those opportunities. And from the leadership down, they should be in that professional development situation themselves, not sending their teachers off to do something, but be right there together with their staff. Not just Māori language acquisition either, it's all about, it's, it's, it's a lot about second language acquisition, how one learns another language in addition to one's first language. There's lots of theory there that teachers could benefit from, which would make their own teaching of Māori as a second language more beneficial and more effective. So I, that would be my, my plea to school leaders uh, ensure there's some quality PD around Māori language, but also second language acquisition per se. Mm. I suppose embracing the challenge is sort of inbuilt into this, isn't it? The, we spoke earlier about, about the, the fear, the understanding that it is okay to be on a journey to mm. proficiency, mm. even if you're completely comfortable with X timetables or mm. English or science, whatever mm. the other subjects mm. may be. It's okay to learn in later life, whether you're a teacher or not a teacher, I suppose. Absolutely. It then honours the Treaty of Waitangi that you're open to learning other ways of doing things. And that's what they'll be judged against partly in their performance appraisals in schools, their openness to learning about Māori ways of doing things, kaupapa Māori. For members of, of the general public that perhaps are not in a position to influence the the state of play with te reo Māori interacting with education in New Zealand, but mm. for their personal understanding mm. of the language and wanting to uh, improve their own proficiency, what might be your recommendations uh, to them other than perhaps to to seek out resources and, and be bold? The main option I would recommend for adults learning te reo Māori who are not involved with the education world necessarily would be to go to a wānanga. They're in most centres, there are satellite hubs, and they have courses there from absolute beginners right up to proficient, um, almost native-like proficiency um, across eight levels. And the participation rates for Pākehā even in those wānanga has been extraordinary in the last couple of decades. So I think there's a growing movement amongst non-Māori to, to get on board this waka, which was a proverb I started when I first sat down here today, James. He waka eke noa. We're all in this together. Get onto the waka, lest you be left behind. Does the progress that we're making fill you with hope, even if it's something as simple as the linguistic landscaping? You know, the way that we see visualised te reo Māori seeming to rise and rise and rise. Do you feel hope about 
the progress we're making and, and us heading in, in the right direction? What gives you, you spark as, as you continue working so hard within this area? What gives me hope are my mokupuna, who are learning at Kuangareo. And one of my older mokupuna is starting the kura at age five in the new year. They give me hope. For them, te reo Māori is a given. They haven't had to struggle for it like we did back in the 1970s. They just take it for granted that they'll be... Um, educated in the medium of Māori. In terms of the 2040 goal that um, the current government has, it's a laudable goal, it's an audacious goal, that one million speakers will be speaking basic te reo. I guess the nuance there is, what is basic te reo? Is it that you'll be able to say your name and your pepeha, your mountain, your river, and how are you? Or is it more than that? So I guess nearer the time we'll know. At the end of the day, we want to honour the Treaty of Waitangi. This is a taonga. And if it's still on the endangered list from OECD, then we need to be proactive and um, all of us do our contribution. And in my PhD, it's non-Māori teachers in primary school who are making their contribution. Responsibility and capability are two words that we come back to. And I guess what we're trying to do on the show is, is actually empower people and mm -hmm. realise that they have a role to play and see that as an opportunity to contribute to, to goals, whether it be something specific like being one of the million by 2040 or, or simply being part of uh, a conversation, whether it be literally in te reo Māori or holistically. Any final thoughts or comments you would like to share? Completely fine if not, but we want to give you the mic for one last time if, okay. if you have any final thoughts. Oh, katukua te, te wero ki a koutou e whakarongo mai nei. Um, akono te reo, whakanuia te reo, no te mea he taonga tukuiho ki tēnei whenua, ki te iwi taketake o tēnei whenua. Nō reira, ki a kaha, Na mehi Alice for coming on to PhD Unpacked and having a chat with James. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Alice's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. Well, that's it. Seven weeks, seven episodes down. If you've made it through all seven, I'm proud of you. If you haven't, you're in luck. You have more incredible episodes to listen to. From Coalesce, we also thank you. Our mission is to be the center point for creatives to platform their experiences, narratives, and stories. And PhD Unpacked is just one example of the line of projects we have focusing on New Zealand. Head to at NZ on Instagram for more from us. From the PhD Unpacked team, we want to say thank you to the researchers. None of this would have been possible without you, and we hope your work can reach the people who need to hear it. And from me, the best friend sitting beside you? Not so fast. I'm not going anywhere. In fact, you'll be hearing a lot more of my voice. Season one was great. Seven different episodes, seven different PhDs, seven topics. 
but some incredible research is published through masters, honours, postgraduate diplomas, and some topics warrant more than one episode. And that's where I come in. Introducing season 1.5, a look into the built environment, the buildings, the communal spaces, and more generally, the landscape we are in. We want to find out how it impacts our emotions and sense of identity and belonging. The built environment impacts us in more ways than we know, and I'll be taking a look at these ways by interviewing three authors who've completed their masters in design and architecture. The same show you've come to love, with a little twist. Season 1.5 will be available for your listening pleasure very soon, so keep your eyes on our Instagram, at PhDUnpacked, to be in the know. And if you haven't had the chance to listen to all seven episodes, then what are you waiting for? Have a listen while you wait for what we have in store. On behalf of the team at PhD Unpacked, thank you once again for joining us for season one of PhD Unpacked. Ka kite anō.